welcome to another Dairy Dialogue podcast, the last one in June, so that means in the Northern Hemisphere the days are already starting to get a little bit shorter. It's downhill from here. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and many parts of Europe are experiencing heat waves. Even in Scotland, it's in the high 20s Celsius, which has sent some people into a bit of a panic as they aren't used to it. But of course, rain is just around the corner with a wet weekend forecast. Also in Scotland, at least in these parts, it's the last day of school today before the summer break, which also usually means a nice prolonged spell of rain. I suppose you have to look at the positives. I suppose it means it'll be good for hay fever sufferers for the next few days while it's wet. On the show this week, we're going to go back in time just a little bit, although not too much, for another interview from Vita Foods in Geneva last month with DuPont's Vincent Matisse and Sonia Huppert. And we also have an interview on an interesting new project in the UK from the Academy of Cheese, which is trying to create a history of UK cheeses. And we will talk to Charlie Turnbull about that. And of course, we have our weekly look at the global dairy markets from INTL FC Stone. It's always good when you go to events and see people you know. In Geneva, it happened a couple of times in the street in the middle of the city, and even though it's people from the Vita Foods event, it's still nice to see a friendly face and make you feel like you belong. The same goes for the event itself. Having been there for several years now, I recognised some of the people, and I even got a hug from one person. And it wasn't around the throat, which was even more positive. And so it was a pleasure to meet up again with and speak with Vincent Matisse, Strategic Marketing Manager for Dairy in the EMEA region from DuPont, as well as Sonia Huppert, the Global Product Leader for Plant-Based Products at DuPont. Pleasure to meet you again, Jim. Um, Talked about, I think, two weeks ago it was, right? Uh, To introduce, actually, uh, Vita Foods. Uh, and uh, during your last uh, last podcast, uh, we we mentioned a, uh, a couple of different uh, trends and what was happening, why this show was uh, actually important for us, um, and uh, what we were also going to present during the show. So maybe that's what I, that's what we probably want to focus a bit sure. more on today, uh, and that's coming back to uh, what I had mentioned already to you around the whole probiotic side of things. Again, uh, last year. I think when we talked on this very show, we had just launched our new Denisco VG range, uh, which is actually our cultures for uh, all that is plant-based materials, plant-based goods, uh, plant-based products. And this range was specially designed actually t- to be able to ferment uh, multiple different base bases, uh, such as you know the, the nuts, oats, rice, coconut, and I could go on. And again, what was very important for us to, to uh, identify here is that it was really the broadest range uh, available actually uh, today on the, on the market. What we realized is we probably didn't publicize enough that of course this range was also supplemented with actually our probiotics and our documented probiotics, uh, which is why also today I invited uh, uh, Sonia Huppert, which is who is actually responsible for the for the product line, uh, for this specific product line, who's also going to be able to talk to you a bit more about uh, uh, why we specifically decided to go with a, uh, a special range on the probiotics, uh, but also why it's so important today to have this range available to, uh, to our customers. Thanks, uh, Vincent. So my name is Sonia Huppert. I'm in charge of the development of cultures for fermented plant-based. 
the last year we launched Venisco VD. As uh, Vincent was already explaining, this is really the broadest range of cultures for uh, plant-based because it's really covering a lot of different raw ingredients like uh, it could be fruit, vegetables, as well as oat, rice, soy, pea protein, for example, and really all what is considered in the plant-based area. This range is already containing probiotics for some of the starter cultures that are within, in fact, the product offering. And uh, what we did remark is some of our customers want to make more claim around probiotics and want to, in some cases, add single probiotics on top of our Danisco VG range. And that's why this year we decided to introduce the two products named How Are You Bifido VG and How Are You Dofidus VG. So they are our uh, two well-documented probiotics and they are suitable for a uh, vegan type of appellation and really working well in a fermented plant-based product. So really this is allowing our customer to provide to the consumer plant-based product having um, a high level of efficacy in terms of digestive control, uh, well-being, etc. And that's the reason, in fact, why we, we introduced this product in fact this year. It's launching, in fact, at that this week at uh, Vita Food, and uh, it is available for our customer who wants to already, in fact, try them. And uh, we will also have some uh, combo, and it could be used with, in fact, the Danisco VG and in combination of Acidophilus and Bifidobacteria. That's uh, really, in fact, for us a very good way to continue to expand our range and to continue to have the broadest offering in the market for plant-based. And this is available in Europe, but also in the other region in the world. So really covering the very different needs that we are seeing in the different regions. Because we clearly see that plant-based is a segment that is growing but with different drivers depending again of uh, the region or even the country and the range is really uh, well designed and formulated to answer the different needs and allow our customer to provide products that the consumer want to see and want to have on the market. And something very important to have products that are very good in terms of taste and texture which will help in fact the consumer to buy but also to in fact continue to use and to buy the product in the long term. So you, you obviously have to really pay attention to the trends as well as well as your own customers do. That's correct, that's something extremely in fact important and on that uh, launch and again this started in fact uh, already one year ago for us it was yes to follow the consumer trend what our customers were asking and to be in fact providing new solutions for this plant-based segment really very early in fact in the market in comparison to what uh, basically others could do. So we were really at a very early stage providing solutions to our customers. And I could also mention that plant-based is an area that is today extremely diverse with fermentation of a lot of different uh, ingredients. But soy has been in the market for a very long time, 
and that's a segment that where we are working with the main players in that segment around the world for now more in fact than 15 or even 20 years so we had also acquired extremely strong expertise in the formulation of cultures for this segment during in fact all, uh, all this time so going into the other ingredient where already for us a question of expanding but also leveraging our knowledge from what we had acquired. And that's really what makes, I could say, the Denisco VG range today extremely uh, well recognized in the market. And even if this has been launched only one year ago, it is a product where we are seeing a very strong demand and that is and that is working very well, really, yeah, really expanding well, working very well at different places in the world. Maybe, maybe going back to what you were asking about uh, trends, uh, I think what we realize is that, again, this really hits some of the key trends that we're seeing um, out there. And I think when you go around today uh, in, uh, in, in Vitafood, you will see all of these trends come out quite clearly, um, whether it's on the digestive side, so digestive health uh, still stays really key. Uh, and that, of course, now with the with the addition of these uh, probiotics, we get you know that that uh, that aspect that consumers are looking for. Even though, of course, we know that in Europe we cannot do any hard claims. Still, what is pretty impressive is that we're seeing you know the product launches with probiotics still growing you know at a very very steep rate, right? So people are trying to um, consume healthier food, and so it's also a, 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 a twist where today where you would take maybe probiotics as a supplement, uh, people are trying to move away from actually taking pills, but more going towards food and, you know, I am what I eat type of, of, of dynamics, where, you know, taking a, a, a juice or a, a, a dairy product or non-dairy product um, with that has the probiotics, it's another way for them to get these, you know, these, these let's say, uh, probiotics that they think is good for their for their digestive health and then uh, the second one which I would say is all that is naturalness and when we're talking about naturalness here is actually the way uh, the food is processed I think there's a lot of focus from the consumer to understand we I mean we talk about clean label cleaner label uh, and you know I mentioned it again uh, when, we, when we talked um, how the consumer is actually driving that. And that's, in their mind, fermentation is a natural process of processing food. And that is something that is, I think is super important. And this is why, of course, as Sonia mentioned, we have been working a lot with our, you know, our innovation, our technicians, uh, our, our scientists behind that to make that also very much more predominant in the way we also customers, so our directors and customers, so producers, communicate that to the, to the, to the final consumer. And last but not least is the whole plant-based aspect, which I think is uh, very much linked to, again, what, uh, what I discussed last time, but back to, you know, health and wellness, sustainability, animal welfare, and again, a lifestyle change in the diet. So uh, trying to, you know, reduce uh, animal, uh, animal good consumptions uh, and going towards more a plant-based and a varied, let's say it's not eliminating it completely, but really trying to have a varied uh, diet which seems to be and is perceived as much more healthy. 
you mentioned people moving away from taking supplements and into more food-based um, products. Is, does that present a challenge in terms of the, the ingredient? Because obviously if it's a supplement you just take it, whereas if it's in food you end up with, with a different <laughs> method of yeah. it's got sometimes it's cooked sometimes it's raw sure. so yeah so of course today we're seeing in fact this trend because as uh, Vincent explained it's really for the consumer to go to something natural food being associated with natural and uh, having effectively probiotics in food is of course a challenge why? Because uh, you have the pH, the acidity of the product, you have the chef life, how it is stored. All those parameters are extremely important in the stability of the probiotics. So, in fact, in at Dupont, we are really working strongly to understand the stability of probiotics in different uh, metrics and. Uh, that's again an area we, we have worked a lot, especially in the dairy in fact market and as well as in beverage and that's very well known product containing in fact our probiotics in beverage. So through this we are expanding and leveraging in fact this expertise into the stability of uh, our well known probiotics into in fact land base. But of course it will remain in fact a challenge because depending of the base, depending of each of the process, it could impact the stability of the probiotic in the end product of our customers. So that's something that we are really following with our customers, with application to ensure that the consumer could get the quantity of probiotics that they are wishing in fact to have for health care. And again, we are in fact providing this expertise and support when it is uh, it is required. But clearly, a challenging uh, area. <laughs> also, what we are uh, what we are uh, presenting today, actually at the show, is uh, is a, also a concept to demonstrate uh, you know the different products that we that we just mentioned. Um, so it is actually a, a fermented probiotic almond shot, uh, which actually contains then our documented. Uh, our U range, uh, which is the the, the bifido uh, over here, um, and it obviously fermented with our Denisco uh, VG range. Uh, these products, of course, have to be stabilized in some way, uh, and for this one, we are using our new gel and gum, actually, which is our new, uh, 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 let's say, a vegan uh, gel and gum uh, that is just launched actually three four days ago. So that's also uh, something that we are we are showcasing here. And now to the UK, where the Academy of Cheese has received funding for a heritage project to collect information on some of the historic cheeses in the UK so the origins of them and history isn't lost. I've toured around other countries where cheese is also very important and there are, for example, cheese museums in the Netherlands and cheese trails in France and it seems that they really treasure and nurture the historic side of the origins of their important cheeses. I asked Charlie Turnbull from the Academy of Cheese if some of these other European countries have done a better job than the UK when it comes to cherishing that history. It, yes, is the answer. We can plot the decline of our history in Britain 
what we can't do is say, why didn't that affect other countries? So if you look at us, we went into World War One with something like 3,500 commercial cheesemakers, not including uh, you know, people who did it for their own use. And we came out of World War Two with around 100 or a bit less. And during that period, it was a combination of the government saying everyone had to make government cheddar for or government cheese for the Second World War. It was the fact that the people making the cheeses were often women, and they were pulled out during the Second World War to take the jobs of men uh, who went off to fight. It was rationing was the end of the cheddar problem, not the end of the war, and rationing didn't end in cheese until 1952 or three. So it was actually a very long period, you know, 10 plus years. So you had all these cheese makers who had um, they'd lost their best people, they'd kind of forgotten how to do it, um, and then the government comes in with subsidies and gives a better, and they, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a nationalized, but they gave base prices. And the base price they gave for milk that went off and made cheese was lower than milk that went off to be drunk as milk. So all these farmers who had lost their ability to make cheese to a great extent and would have had to rebuild were suddenly de-incentivized to even give it a go when all they had to do was dump their milk in a trailer that turned up every morning. So it just fractured and destroyed our industry. And then following on from that, you have what I call the um, want mash, get smash generation of the 50s and 60s when technological advances, as we feel them as they them at the time, thought that our food was going to be revolutionized and we were going to get it out of packets and stuff. So there wasn't any, there wasn't no looking back, no deliberate connecting with the people of uh, of the, the, the 19th century and the early 20th century. And it wasn't really until, I call it sort of the Elizabeth David generation, and in cheese that's people like Patrick Rance and Randolph, Hod Randolph Hodgson in the late 70s and 80s who start saying, well, what happened to our cheeses? Because the French managed to save almost everything. I mean, it never was destroyed. Almost like it was a point of local and national pride through the war and that, they go on making their cheeses their way. But their structures are much more cooperative. And What are you doing to try and turn that around? Well, we have got some funding from the Frank Parkinson Trust, which is great. I mean, it's a project that we've been desperately trying to fund, so we, it's really good news. We've got a lot of money. Um, it's a few, you know, we've got £15,000 for them, and we're hoping to put about half of that towards this project. And our journey is to capture the history of the cheeses that and were just beginning to seriously lose the people. So in the 1920s, before the Second World War, there was a belief that we should be in government, that we should be pushing people back to the farms, that we should be holding people on the, on the farms and making products. So they did quite a lot of work back then on what are the recipes, who's doing it, what cheeses are still successful, and that kind of thing. And that turned around over the Second World War and into the 50s and 60s. So there's quite a lot of people who did a lot of work back in that generation, and we're working with and people who were trained by those people. So there's a direct line back to that. And so that 1920s, 1930s period is a very important period for us to reach back now while we still can. I mean, there is a lot of written material. There are you know, minivag and fish kind of bulletins and that kind of thing that we can actually go and read, and they're very valuable. But right now, we've got people who are trained by the people who wrote those. And we don't, we're not going to have them for much longer. And they also were, they were living at a time when they just didn't have the technological tools that we take for granted now. And they had their own methods of production and responses to risk 
and coping with raw milk and all sorts of things that that we either avoid or have got techie solutions to, and they would have done it different ways. So, and there, the reason that they did the things as they did, the influences and necessities back then, guided the way they made the cheese into the flavors and textures that they did. So what now seems like we do it for fun because it's the way we've always done it. Almost all the influences back there were necessity bound and the artisan nature of the people making it, turning it into a, an asset, a benefit. Cheese is back then quite a dangerous game. You know, there's a lot of pathogens they didn't know how to control. We can do it really well now. But they were people who had to be really pedantic in their cheese making techniques to make sure that they didn't let in through the door because you couldn't see them things that would make their cheeses unhealthy and ruin reputations and lives. Uh, whereas we do it, you know, when we talk about unpasteurized cheese nowadays, we do it from the benefit of, well, we can control for it. They couldn't back then, not in the same way. How are you recording all of this information? Is it a multimedia project? or It is a multimedia project. What we don't have funded at the moment, and if you can anyway help with this, it would be great, is we've got a couple of people who want to do oral histories. But for the moment, we've got funding to get an editorial team together to do it online through social media. So we're putting up a, uh, a web-based recording system that, and we publish that and then we're going to support that with all the areas. And we're reaching out to not only the cheese makers, but we're reaching out to farmers, the cheese makers who are no longer active. We're looking at, so we want to know how the recipes are done. We want to know what breweries were in the same area. I mean, Cheshire's a really good example because they had all the salt mining areas of Cheshire. So it's on the Cheshire, Cheshire Basin has got this salty um, bed beneath the ground, which not only provides the salt that goes on to be used in the Cheddar making, Cheshire making process, but also in, brings about a certain culture to the field. So you get different flora and fauna in the, in the grass, which is very important back then. Nowadays, your average field in Cheshire is probably not much different from your average field in Lincolnshire or Devon, you know, climate aside. But back then there was enormous variation in the flora and fauna. And why did you choose Cheshire first? Was there a reason for that? Um, we wanted a cheese that was very important, but we also didn't want to choose one of the big ones like Cheddar and Stilton. Um, we are running three or four months from now, as in for the next three or four months, we're building the template, which we will then carry through to the other UK main cheeses. And Cheshire has the advantage of being a very distinct area because you can match it to the geology. It's got a huge heritage. It's one of the most popular cheeses in the country up until the 19th and early 20th century. It is not as popular as it once was, but it's very distinctive. It's also the fastest acidifying cheese. So it's got a very particular make, and it dates. It's the oldest recorded cheese inside UK literature. So. We're pretty sure it goes down back to Roman times, but this is the kind of thing we need to prove, or at least show our sources and wonder how reliable those sources are. So it's that sense of being very important, but nonetheless containable for our first outing. And there are other cheeses as well in that first round of 10. It's going to be Lancashire, Caffili, Wensleydale, <laughs> Stilton White, Stilton Blue, the Gloucesters. Uh, what have I missed? Red Leicester, I think, in the first round. And then there's a second round of cheeses like Proverston and... Cheese, and then cheeses that don't have quite the same heritage, like Shropshire Blue, but are still popular. Uh, and I know you might think of them as derivations of historic cheeses. Are you looking to extend it to as many cheeses as you can? I mean, if, if somebody were to contact you that has information or a history in a, a very small cheese, is that, are you still looking for I everything? absolutely do want to do that, without question. 
we need help. This stuff is disappearing. If we can't capture it through the, you know, the photographs and the and the stories of the people out there, then it might just some of the stories might just die. So anything that captures, and we will put up anything we can. Now it might not be that we can do it straight away, but building that, just knowing cheeses are out there that we need to follow up on, is an important step forward. Yeah, well, it's building up a, a bigger picture of the way that it was. I know in some mm. countries they have cheese museums and uh, oh, they do. It's, in France, you get cheese trails all over the place. Yeah, um, but that history of lots of small. I mean, Comte is probably France's most exacting cheese to make and has some really fantastic outcomes. And there are 175 Comte makers, right? There's no equivalent to that in the UK. <laughs> that sense of whole areas committed to production in that way. If it was the UK, that would have consolidated down to one big factory and three or four artisan makers by now, like it's happened in, Chesh- in Cheddar. Yeah, we don't have the business or the culture to preserve in this country. And it doesn't mean that we're bad people or anything. It just means that we've got to do it in a different way. And what's the ultimate goal of this? Is it for a historical record or is it to be utilized in the future? From the Academy's, the Academy's overarching view is to get more people to enjoy and like cheese. It's, it, and that sounds kind of sweet, and it is. That's what we want. Um, and we believe that part of that is heritage and stories. You know, the best accompaniment to a cheese is a story. And that reflection of that through the you know, decades and centuries going past I means seeing those cultures and stories of, on a local basis. What were the cheeses of, of Ayrshire and what were the, the, species, the cheeses of Lincolnshire? And you start looking at these in great detail and you begin to realize that most of it has moved on, but people still want to know. And, they, and the cheesemakers in those areas can look at our record as we're going to provide it and they can start going, oh, maybe we could experiment with looking at short horns in our herds and uh, you know, maybe allowing the grass to degrade a bit in the way that, um, or diversify a bit in the way that it would have been in the late 1900s, early 20th century. And then we might be able to capture some of those flavors. So looking at those things and, you know, and the consumers are showing interest. And the other thing that we're seeing in the cheese industry is, I mean, because the cheese industry is 2.8-ish billion of cheese, the UK eaten, about one, about half of that is cheddar, right? So cheddar is this huge beast of about 1.4 billion in sales. And it just knocks everything over. And the supermarkets, because they make money out of simplicity, want every other cheese basically to be of a cheddar model. Pile it high, sell it on discount, that kind of thing. And to do that, they have historically pushed what we call the comfort flavors, a sweet, salt, savory combination. And British cheeses don't do sweet. Sweet is naturally occurring in a lot of alpine cheeses. The Gruyere's where it's very much in balance and fantastically displayed, so it's not a bad thing. But in the British canon of cheeses, we are we're dominated by salt and savoury cheeses. So cheddar is salty, savoury. Uh, Cheshire is salt, savoury, bitter. It's, it's, and those are quite adult flavours. And cheese is dominated by what you might think of as family purchases, so things you have in your fridge at all times, going to sandwiches and all that kind of thing. So the trends have moved away from our historical uh, flavor profiles. And we want to display and give people the option to look at the heritage flavor profiles in the same way as they've come to really enjoy complexity in both, both heritage and innovation in 
beer making, craft beer making, uh, in chocolate, in, in coffees. We want to give people the tools to explore cheese in the same way. Yeah, I was going to say it's similar to artisan is very big in many different foods and mm. and, and also cheese, small cheeses and artisan cheeses around the world seem to be taking off. So why not they here do. as well? Well, 99.1% uh, or something of, it's actually quite difficult to count because it depends how you count, um, but 99% is a good working number of cheese that consumed in this country comes out of a creamy, which is one of three or four very big cheese making production facilities. Um, the rest of them are artisans of one form or another. Um, and we're desperate to close that gap. Not, not even numbers terms, it's just that it's, it's like this huge gulf between large production cheese, which is premised on a marketing theory that no one doesn't like it, if you see what I mean. And, uh, and artisan cheese, where they embrace complexity, but inevitably means that the people who eat it are split. Some people like it and some people don't, um, because you've got these strange or unusual, sometimes challenging flavors. And there's just such a big gap between the two that we don't have the same trade up, trade down, something posh for the weekend kind of attitude, which you would have with a bottle of wine. If you walk into a supermarket and you're a couple of good mates are coming around the weekend, you might go from a six pound bottle of wine up to an eight pound bottle of wine because you want to. But you don't have that same accessibility in cheese. And anybody can contribute to this project? This is a community project. And by community, I mean all 67 million of the UK citizens who like cheese. So if you can people. get people to like our Facebook page and, and you know, log on to the website and see with the start we've made them, you'll see what we're trying to do. I mean, there's no question about it that you can write all you like, but someone actually talking about it, either just an oral or audiovisual, is, is, is a special kind of capturing history. I mean, you, you, you look back at stuff done in the 70s and 70s and 80s, and you just feel that time, you know, in a way that right, reading it doesn't quite capture that, if, if you feel to me. And now we take a look at the global dairy markets, as we do each week with INTL FC Stone. And this week, it's Charlie Highland with all the info for us. Okay, Jim. So um, just a quick recap on the, the dairy markets this week. Um, in general, uh, I suppose the, the, the biggest kind of topic on people's minds this week was probably the, the weather we're seeing in Europe with some extreme heat conditions, um, obviously having some direct impact in terms of, uh, of milk production, mostly driven by, by cow comfort. Um, so if we look across the continent, certainly with the, the, very, the high temperatures in the, in the high 30s, um, you would have a, a reasonably significant um, reduction in, in milk output uh, when, the, when the weather's at that, that high level. So uh, looking at that, there's definitely been a return of some buyers to the market um, concerned, or at least the, because of the fact that the weather is now um, causing some potential uh, reasons for long-term concern. When we look at it, though, from from our perspective, uh, it's it's certainly at no, it's not a crisis level yet. We're looking at um, very good soil moisture coming into this hot period. So uh, really, if things return to normal in the in the next week or two, uh, we we see no long-term uh, impact. Uh, now, obviously, if if this hot weather does continue for longer, then then we can start, we do start to get worried that there there is potential drought impacts, but but not a concern this minute. 
Um, but in general, the markets have moved up a little bit as a result of it, nothing too major. Um, the spot market quotations uh, were down, but they're always lagging the, the actual traded market. Um, butter has moved up a little bit this week, trading now at 4,000 euros in, in quarter four and above 4,100 in quarter one of next year. And Skim has also moved up a very slight bit as well, trading about 2175 in quarter four. Um, other external news and data, the Chinese imports were released for May, which were lower than expected, down almost 17%, um, largely driven by uh, very low weigh imports, obviously due to the, uh, the swine flu issues. Um, but in general, uh, yeah, lower than expected imports, so that's causing some concern around um, the demand picture there. Uh, we have a GDT auction next Tuesday, which in general, the futures markets and, and our current uh, level of forecasts are coming in at about 2% down for that auction. So we'll be keenly watching that next week to give us uh, next directional um, views. Thanks, Charlie. I guess Liam is back next week, so we'll talk to him then. INTL FC Stone provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And so that's it for this week's Dairy Dialogue podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed it. And of course, if you are able to contribute to the UK Cheese Heritage Project, the email address is in the accompanying article on dairyreporter.com. Or if you can't wait and need to check it out right now, the web address to go to is academyofcheese.org heritage. Next week, among other things, we may get our first 18-rated podcast because we're talking about poop, although I'm sure that's an acceptable word nowadays, as we talk to Arla in Sweden about their latest project, running trucks on biofuel from cow poop. I'll see if I can get some tips on possibly converting our family car, although it's probably a bit more complicated than that. Our US reporter Beth Newhart was in New York City this week at the Summer Fancy Food Show, so we may have an interview from there. She also went to a Yankees game, so perhaps the interview is with centre fielder Aaron Hicks. Sort of a test of his knowledge of the dairy industry. Maybe that's a special feature we could start. Top superstars, 10 favourite dairy products. Kicking off with Tom Hanks, 10 favourite cottage cheese flavours. Or maybe not. Anyway, until then, have a great week, and thanks for listening.